Well, good morning. All right, I, one is awake on the front row here. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right, glad you guys are awake and, and you didn't get washed away. What that tells me from the old saying uh, is that none of us are so sweet that we melted this morning, right? So we need to work on that, I would assume, myself included. So that's the old joke uh, from times past where they would say when it would be raining very hard, I wasn't sweet enough where I would melt. And so ultimately, hopefully, we can work on some of that this week. So hopefully you're glad to be here, thankful for the opportunity for us to worship the Lord together and then be able to worship over his or under his word this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, join me in John chapter 18. John 18, as we've just been going systematically through the gospel of John, uh, we've been in the last week of the life of Jesus uh, for several chapters now. We, As we were studying through, we pick up in chapter 13, where it was uh, Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper. He was participating in the Passover feast, and we have been in that night uh, ever since. Uh, and so now we are finally reached early morning hours. Daybreak has made its way to us uh, in our uh, in our narrative in our account, and we are walking through that uh, this morning in John chapter 18. And we'll pick up in verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter, which would be verse 40. And so I'd encourage you to take out the Bible if you have it out on an electronic device, that's fine. We're in the English Standard Version, or if you don't have that and you don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to look at uh, the, the uh, Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible or this translation, you're more than welcome to take that as a gift from us to you. So that's where we're going to be this morning. And our theme, if you'll have, if you were, had a, um, a weekly bulletin, uh, I encourage you to take that out with the notes therein, and you'll see it's King of the Jews, and it's part one. So uh, the desire is to finish part one today, and then we'll pick up in part two. And part of that is allowing the text to speak for itself and me not to come up with just clever things to say. Uh, our aim is for us to know more about God and who he is and not uh, just helpful things about uh, us. We're supposed to be here learning about God, worshiping God, and as a result, yes, we do change. And so as a result of that, that's what we want to be able to see this morning as we read through John 18, 28 through 40, you're going to think, well, why the title that you choose at most time, we just let the text speak for itself. And so it's what we call exegesis, lifting out the text and lifting out what the Bible is telling us. And so you're going to see here uh, a phrase uh, through this chapter and then the beginning of the next chapter and then all the way through the end of the crucifixion, the king of the Jews and the king of the Jews. And that's what we want to pay attention to. It's interesting. We look at that and we may just think that's just a definition of who Jesus is. He was he was, he is the king of the Jews, the king of the Jewish people, the king of the people or children of Israel. And we look at that from a uh, Christian perspective and we're like, hey, that's, that's right. And this is accurate. And it's an, an aspect of who he is. Not he's simply the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the world. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And so there's nothing wrong with that. The reality is, though, that's not how it was intended in the first century. It's not how it was intended, and it's not the way Pilate would have interpreted that phrase. Uh, it's not intended how, why it was written or inscribed upon the placard that was above Jesus' head, and why he was being crucified. They'd oftentimes write the, the, uh, um, the accusation or even the verdict or the, the, the um, law that was broken, what was the law that was transgressed, and so ultimately that's be what would the uh, criminals would take, and they would many times would carry it around their neck until they got to... Uh, the place of the skull, Golgotha, where they would be crucified. And so ultimately, it would be a means of humiliating them, of demonstrating what they've done. And so ultimately, here's the picture. Jesus is walking 
um, and uh, will ultimately be crucified for being the king of the Jews, which isn't uh, necessarily against the law, which we'll look at today. And so as you spend time, I would encourage you, even as we read this passage together, highlight, underline where it relates to Jesus being called the king of the Jews, his king, he's a king, my kingdom, over and over and over, you're going to see this uh, being spoken again and again and again. And with that, it's meant to be a term of derision. It's meant to be a slander. It's meant to be a slam against Jesus. And, and it did not originate with Pilate. It originated with the Jews. And so we'll explain that as we walk through that. As it is, as what we often call ourselves, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the very name that we're, it's associated with us was originally started as a means of a derisive term as well. It's a means of a word to, to condemn us. And it's the word we call, or the word that we see, Christian, a little Christ. And it was, we look at that, and it's a badge potentially of honor. Uh, yes, call me a little Christ. But it was intended to be uh, slander, as we, it's first coined, or the uh, phrase is first seen in the book of Acts. And so ultimately, in the same way, we look at that, and we're like, hey, in our culture, it makes sense. So we understand what's intended to be communicated. But that was not in its original first century how the word was supposed to be seen or how it was meant. And so for that, I want us to be able to try to see some of these things as we walk through our text together. And even as we walk through uh, John 18, just as a means of another disclaimer before we read the passage together, I'm going to try to include without doing harm necessarily or, or, or not with um, uh, false advertising. I'm here trying to teach John 18, 28 through 40, and I intend to do that. And so I don't want to just teach then all the Bible, and you're thinking, man, we're never going to get home. He started in John, but then we went back to Genesis, and then we went through the whole Old Testament, and then we're now going to get to Revelation. Like, I want to be honest and, and advertising, so we're going to spend our time primarily in, in 28 through 40. However, there are aspects with the other three gospel accounts that I want to try to at least draw your attention to very briefly, very, very quickly. And so and with that, there can be discrepancies as it's initially seen, as it initially is viewed. And we, we talked about that before uh, in, in previous weeks as it relates to the high priest and who was the high priest. And if Caiaphas is the high priest and the Bible says Caiaphas is the high priest and what was Annas doing be called the high priest as we looked at last week. And so with that, I want to just, I brought this to your attention last week, but I want to just, I brought the book with me for you to be able to see just to put your eyes on it and, if, and to be able to encourage you. Uh, there's a means by which, and, and John MacArthur, which is this copy I have in my hands, wasn't the first to do this. It was based upon other guys who have done this long before he uh, put it into place. John MacArthur brought this, uh, put this book into, the, in, into print for us that basically takes the four Gospels and ties them all together where you see the full account and chronological sequential order. And so it's a great, a great means to be able to utilize even as a family devotion for you, even if we're reading through this, or if you just want to a bigger picture of what's taking place because as we're going to, I'll show you in John 18 today, the, the gospel writers have a purpose in who they're writing to, how they're writing, and what they include in their gospel account. And so sometimes they're assuming that others have read the previous gospel uh, authors, and so they're not including certain aspects. Uh, they are including certain things. They're including very specific things. And so you'll see uh, at other times, uh, for example, um, uh, the rooster is said to have crowed twice before uh, Peter denies the Lord three times. And other aspects only include once. Is that a contradiction? Why is that included? And so ultimately it can be very difficult. And so a book like this helps to be able to not only allow you to see the full picture of it, but then gives some explanation as it relates to it. And so once again, one perfect life 
uh, is one of the copies. There's other copies uh, I can show you if you're not a fan of John MacArthur for some reason. There's other guys who have written, written similar books, and so I would encourage you to pick up one of these just as a means of studying along with us as we walk through this and as a means of even like a devotional, as I mentioned earlier, you could be studying together as a family, something that we do and have been doing as a family this year as well. So uh, I would encourage you to do that. And it's not simply uh, this season. It's the entire life of Jesus from the the beginning of Matthew 1 to the end of John 21. Uh, It helps us to walk through all four Gospels and the entire life of Jesus, and that's why it's entitled One Perfect Life. So long introduction, long explanation to help us study this morning as we look at uh, Jesus, King of the Jews, in John 18. So if you hopefully have had time now to find your place. Let's read verse 28 of John 18 to verse 40 together, and then we'll pray. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them. He would be the governor that's mentioned there. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters Again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. As we walk through this narrative, this gospel account, this real life history, will you allow us to have a clear understanding of what's being taught, an understanding of the other gospel writers are writing and for us to be able to get a better glimpse of the very sovereign work of Jesus going to the cross on our account, on our behalf, for all who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in you. Lord, I know this is a story that many of us are familiar with, that we may even have watched movies and uh, numerous movies as it relates to this. And many times it can be difficult when things are very, very familiar, that, Lord, it, as the old adage says, it, it can breed contempt. And I pray that would not be the case. I pray that you would help us to see this fresh and anew to us. That, Lord, that we would be uh, challenged and convicted. That we would see ourselves as sinners 
that were in need of salvation and, and that, Lord, that, are, that still sin against you. May it be something that warns us the means of which people still be, would be willing to put Jesus to the death, would still be willing to nail him to the cross, even to this day, if, Lord, if he were on this planet, because the word says we love darkness rather than the light. And so I pray that you would help uh, all of us, myself included, to see this passage in its proper light. And then, Lord, I pray that even though we're in the midst of this narrative, we're in the middle of what will be a part, two-part series and uh, a two-part sermon, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to glean truths even as far as application for today, for this week, for our own lives, that, Lord, that we may be men and women who know you more, who love you more, and who obey you all the more. And there's any in this room who've never been saved, I pray today they would not harden their hearts, but, Lord, that they would turn from their sin, repent of that sin, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he was going to do as it relates to this narrative and what, you, what he already did for us by dying on the cross, by uh, resurrecting the third day and by ascending to you and the right hand of you on high. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 18, as we were walking through here, what has happened? What has brought us at this point? Very, very quickly, I will uh, begin to pick up what has happened. In, in verse 28, it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So before we even get into your outline, uh, you can just kind of listen in, and I'll make sure I draw your attention to about start filling in the blanks as we go through, and we'll try to fill in all six blanks relatively quickly because if you're like me and you walk out of here and you don't get all the blanks filled, it's just going to bother you the rest of the day. So we'll make sure all the blanks get filled in and uh, allow you to be able to walk out of here with all your blanks completed. But uh, just to give you some insight and why I think it's important for us to be able to see this, as we were talking about we were discussing, Jesus had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying. Meanwhile, one of his 12, Judas, had went to the, the chief priests and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and had, and had uh, assembled these guys together to be able to betray Jesus and knew where Jesus was going to be that particular night, knew probably what his habit had been, um, where the, he might have been staying the, the week of Passover. He may have been staying in that garden. It was a place where he could have taught them. He could have got away from um, the crowds and he could have been able to spend there, uh, spent time resting and praying and, uh, and discipling the 12. And so he'd been there all week probably. And so Judas knew where to find him. And so Judas had uh, left the Passover celebration, was not a part of the, the institution of the communion uh, process, which we would celebrate and we do celebrate and, and uh, our 21st century uh, relationship to Christ as a part of the body. And so he, he was already gone. They find him in there. They make their, make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is praying. They fall asleep. They being the other 11 fall asleep. They're not watching and praying with him. And Judas shows up with uh, the Roman cohort, Roman soldiers and the temple police. And so they're there together. It says the chief priests and uh, leaders were there as it relates to other gospel accounts. And so a pretty big group that comes. They come with clubs and swords and and lights, and so it's um, uh, ultimately at this particular time, this is, uh, they're looking for uh, a battle potentially on their hands, and that's not at all what they find. Jesus ultimately uh, uh, walks with them, protects the, the other 11, making sure that they only take him, they only desire to uh, arrest him in an attempt to protect them, as we saw in John uh, 17 and 18, as far as the high priestly prayer and how that fleshed itself out in, 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 in uh, John 18. And then ultimately, from that particular time, we find that he was taken to Annas' house. Annas was uh, a previous high priest. As we talked about the structure and how it works, there was a, uh, an assembling of 
elders of the land that they had pulled from the Old Testament, and this was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of the a religious and legislative group that ruled over the Jewish people under Roman authority. And so this was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70, and this was pulled from uh, the, God's institution of, of the governing body in the Old Testament. And so they brought this into the New Testament. They called this group the Sanhedrin. It's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and uh, ultimately that was religious sects within uh, the, the Jewish community. And so these would be the religious scholars, as it would, that they would be the ones who would know the Bible. They would swap the term lawyer that we derive today as those who know the law. That would not be talking about civil law as much as be talking about biblical law, moral law, being the Ten Commandments and such. And so as a result of that, this Sanhedrin would convene, and it would convene under the new high priest. And the high priest would be added to that 70, and that would thus make 71 and a tiebreaker when they would vote on things. And so ultimately, Annas was one of those. And ultimately, he was deposed of his responsibilities by Rome because they didn't want an individual ruling over a long amount of time, even though the Bible would say the Jewish high priest was a role for life. And so the Romans didn't want that. They didn't want ultimately an uprising, a coup to, to arise. And so as a result of that, they kept um, removing that, those people. And so ultimately, you, we've seen through history that Annas was uh, a high priest. Five of his sons and a grandson was also a high priest who, after he was uh, removed. And now you have Caiaphas as high priest, and we saw that Caiaphas was the uh, son-in-law to Annas. So it's staying within the family, and the reason it was staying within the family was because ultimately these guys were amazing money makers, and this was beneficial to them, and it was beneficial to Rome. And so Rome wanted their taxes, Rome, Rome wanted peace, Rome wanted, uh, wanted ultimately the people just to do what they asked them to do, and ultimately the coffers to be fulfilled, right, for the the money to come in. And so it worked out really well. They could continue to do, remove the leader, and he kept it within his family. And this is why then Jesus, at the start of his ministry in John chapter 2, and at the end of his ministry, we see uh, the week of Passover that Jesus cleanses the temple. Why was he cleansing the temple? It was because it was a bazaar of Annas. It was, uh, it was a mockery of what the Bible had intended the, the temple to be, and they were basically making lots and lots of money on the sacrificial system. How would they do that? Remember, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were dispersed, right, because they didn't keep the Sabbath. And so when they, after they were brought back based on prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others, they were eventually brought back, and the temple was rebuilt, and uh, they were, had their own homeland again where they had been dispersed, where the Assyrian kingdom attacked the northern kingdom, which was Israel. The southern kingdom eventually fell, which was Judah, and the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was attacked by Babylon, and they were deported. And so ultimately, what was Israel no longer was. And so they were in all kinds of different lands, and they were learning different languages and different customs and different manners. And so this is where they were. When they were brought back, ultimately this particular time, they were reinstituted, and they were going back to the, the, the Word of God, which the, you know, had been given to them. And so ultimately at this time, uh, there was a handful that was brought back. But many, many stayed in the variety of regions where they were, but they still wanted to come back and provide this, the sacrificial system and have their sins atoned for by the system God had established in the Old Testament. Well, in doing so... When they would bring their money, they would not be allowed to bring money with inscriptions on it with, with pictures of other people, especially Roman coins because it had the inscription of whose image? Caesar. And Caesar believed himself to be a god or one of the gods. And so that would be a form of idol worship. And so they would not allow the money to come in. And so they would have money changers there to be able to change the money to a, uh, an appropriate money that could be given as an offering. That would be one. Second uh, reality they would have, would they, the Bible talked about the, the sacrificial lamb had to be without spot or blemish. And so there would be these pre-certified lambs that were already there and ultimately had exorbitant rates on these 
uh, pre-certified lambs, and so ultimately people who were traveling from afar didn't want to have, even if it was a spotless lamb, it could be damaged, it could have its legs broken, things could happen on the, the way they traveled there, and so ultimately many people wouldn't show up with this uh, spotted lamb or this non-spotted lamb with this spotless lamb, and so ultimately they would show up needing a lamb, and so then they would pay these exorbitant prices for money to be changed and exchanged into uh, the currency that they needed, and or second, they would uh, pay exorbitant rates for the Passover lamb to be purchased so they could perform uh, the Passover. And so as a result, the religious leaders were making bank. They were making lots and lots of money. And this is why Jesus got so upset and why he flipped over tables for the money, money lenders and the money changers and why he cleared out the temple because why? It was all about business. And so this Annas was the, the ringleader behind all this, and this is where Jesus was first taken. He wasn't the high priest. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the high priest. He was taken to Annas' house because why? He's the one who holds the purse strings. He's the one who holds the power. He's the one who makes all the puppets that are with him, all his family, do what he wanted done. And that's why they even called all the events surrounding these feasts the, um, uh, the bazaar of Annas. It's because ultimately he was the one running all this. And so the people didn't like that. Uh, they didn't trust their high, their, their high priest, but at the same time, they wanted to worship God, and so they were in a rock and a hard place. And so when Jesus came on the scene, he spoke truth, and they loved the truth that he spoke, and there was freedom, and it made sense, and, and there was lots and lots of um, instruction given, and the people loved his teaching. And so this is where you find himself. So, so when he shows up to Annas' house, he won't respond to Annas very much. He's, he's basically saying uh, Annas has no charges to bring against him. They've, they've arrested him at night. Uh, they've done it in the cloak of darkness. They've arrested him at this particular time because they don't want, and when he came in, there was such fanfare at the beginning of his uh, approach to uh, Jerusalem and on that Monday, and so ultimately the people were hailing him as Hosanna, and there was large, large crowds, and they were so excited he was here, and by the time it arrives to Thursday night, uh, they want to arrest him. They have an opportunity to arrest him. They seize that moment, and now they've arrested him under the cloak of darkness, and now we're pr- pr- uh, putting him before a trial, and there'll be uh, six different scenes you'll see in the trial, There'll be three Jewish ones. You, you, as we were walking through this, he shows up at Annas' house, and there'll be twice. There'll be interactions at Chi- with Caiaphas at Caiaphas' house with the Sanhedrin. So that would be the 70 to partner with Caiaphas that's going to make a final verdict on Jesus. And then we're going to pick up where then they're going to send him from there to uh, Pilate, and then Pilate's going to interact with him. Then he's going to send him to Herod because he doesn't really want to deal with Jesus. And then Herod's going to send him because Herod's from the region where Jesus was originally from, which is Galilee. And, and Pilate's like, I'll pass him off on Herod. Herod's in town for this. And so I uh, pass him off, and then Herod sends him back. Now Pilate's got to deal with this. And so you see those three, uh, Annas, Caiaphas, Caiaphas again, the three Jewish trials. And then you're going to see the three, which would be more of the religious trials. And you're going to see then it being brought to Rome uh, for a civic trial so that he could be put to death. That's all they wanted was Jesus to be removed and taken away. And so then he goes before, Caia- or before Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod, Antipas, and then back to Pilate. And this is what we're going to try to walk through most of that isn't included in John's writing. So much so, as we walk through here, we just kind of help you see this, tied in from verse 28 to where we were. Let me just help you kind of see this, uh, to, to navigate through this. If you go back to verse 12 of John 18, I'm just going to read a couple things just to tie it all together so you'll be able to see it in accordance to what the Bible's saying. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Remember, that's what I told you. So why are they taking him to Annas if he's not the high priest? Because he's the purse strings, right? He's the bell cow, as we say in, in southern vernacular, right? So they're the ones everyone's following. And uh, ultimately, though, Caiaphas, the high priest, 
who went to Annas' house. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That was back in John chapter 11, and that was after the resurrection of Lazarus. They saw he was raising Lazarus from the dead, and the people, this was the week of Passover, and they were amazed at what was, what was transpiring, what was taking over a week prior to that, um, uh, uh, before the Passover week. And so ultimately, they, they were, I mean, we need this guy to die. Uh, and so Caiaphas kind of prophesied that, even though he didn't really know what he was saying. And you see in verse 15, Peter is following at a distance. Skip down to verse 19. It says, the high priest then, this is speaking of Annas. That's why I was trying to explain to you how that worked. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus is going to tell him, hey, I don't, I've spoken openly. Why are you asking me these questions? Because ultimately he had no real accusation to bring against Jesus. They just wanted him dead. That's all they wanted, wanted him dead. We have no, no charges to bring against you. So I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to interrogate you. And I'm going to try to uh, get you to basically uh, confess something or to be able to say something that I can hold against you, right? which is against the law then, and it's why it's against the law in our own nation as far as uh, uh, as it relates to trials and, and uh, the innocence of people because ours is based on similar instructions from this very wise way of, of, uh, of handling um, those who are being on trial and witnesses and so forth. And so ultimately, verse 24 helps us to see, Annas then sent him bound, him Jesus, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so verse 19 says, Annas is the high priest, Verse 24 then says he's sending him to Caiaphas, the high priest. How does that work? Once again, because the high priest is the high priest for life, according to the Bible, not what Rome says. And so ultimately he's then led to the high priest. You see uh, Peter's in verses 25 through 27, Peter's last two denials, his second denial and third denial, the rooster crows. And then verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now a lot happened in there. There was two more trials at Caiaphas' house. Right? The Sanhedrin had been gathered together. They're going to make a ruling. And so there was two more trials that took place there that basically John just blows by. And so ultimately there's a reason he's trying to move this along to be able to see the crucifixion. And part of this is potentially because there were other gospel accounts already in circulation at the time. And they would be able to tie those into the previous accounts. Matthew would have been written at that time and others. So ultimately as we're walking through this, um, this is part of the reasoning behind this. But there were two more and so in this, this is where they're going to start beating Jesus. They're going to spit on Jesus. They're going to make a mockery of him. They're going to blindfold him and punch him and say, prophesy to us who hit you. And they're going to do a variety of things. And all they could basically get Jesus to say was that he was the son of God. And so as a result, they called it blasphemy. And um, because they didn't believe he was the son of God, they didn't believe the works that Jesus did. They didn't believe the words of Jesus. Uh, and so even though they had seen all these works that Jesus had done, they didn't believe in any of those works. Uh, and so as a result of that, they've now taking him. They, they've gotten their verdict they want. It was in the middle of night, and so they beat him up, but they realized this, hey, this is illegal. Uh, we need to be doing this during the daylight, and so at first light, they bring, uh, uh, they gather the council together again, and they basically ask Jesus the same questions again, and he gets the same answer from Jesus again, and they give a final verdict with, uh, uh, with it being during the daytime, so now this is a legal trial. The whole thing's a farce. The whole thing's a joke. And yet, these are the men who are leading spiritually, supposedly. These are the men who are supposed to be leading the people to God, and yet they're going to kill God. Now, as I say that, I want to just bring up a disclaimer, um, because this is a, typically can be seen and can be said out throughout our culture, and as this isn't anti-Semitic, this isn't a hatred of Jews, this is history. And so as a result, who killed Jesus? The Jews did. 
Only the Jews? No, we're gonna, I'm going to show you Pilate is going to be absolutely responsible. There's going to be Roman soldiers going to be involved. They're absolutely responsible for their actions. And so ultimately you see human responsibility with the Jewish people. You see human responsibility with the Roman people. You see uh, human responsibility all throughout uh, that there are individuals, not just the Jews, that killed Jesus. And that's human responsibility. But as Pastor Tim was uh, walking us through, even through song, there's divine sovereignty in that too. And so as you get to Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching this post-resurrection sermon in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit now is now indwelling uh, believers and, is, uh, and, and uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is moving in their midst. He preached a sermon. He says, it wasn't just you who killed him, but it was a part of the predetermined plan of God. And so God was responsible. Jesus himself was responsible. Throughout this, Jesus is going to force their hands to make this happen and make this happen sooner than he wanted. As we've studied through this gospel account, they didn't, want it, they didn't want Jesus to be arrested during this uh, Passover uh, because they didn't want it to create this drama. And so they didn't want there to be a big backlash that would be able to happen. And so ultimately you see that Christ is sovereign over the affairs of this also. And you'll, I'll point those out as we come across this. So I want you to be able to see in verse 28, Then they, they being the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the uh, governing board there, is going to lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas after it had been daybreak, uh, to uh, the governor's headquarters, which will be Pontius Pilate, all right? So a lot of background, but I wanted to show you that ultimately there's nothing really said about the two trials that take place at Caiaphas' house, and ultimately I wanted you to be able to see that, and that's why other renderings, other readings, reading the Gospels in, in unison will be helpful to that, but ultimately I don't want to be preaching all the Gospels. I'm trying to preach John 18 to you, but I want you to be able to see how they all tie together. And so what's the big takeaway for us to be able to see here from John 18, 28. Number one, you see the condemnation of the king of the Jews. All right, this derisive term that was used, you're going to see as a condemnation. The, the religious leaders are condemning Jesus. And not just simply condemning him uh, in a way that was by words. They want to condemn him by works. They want him dead. Now, this is interesting that they want him dead. They've, they've Ultimately, according to their laws... They believe he's blasphemed, that he is, he is taking the Lord's name in a vain manner, that he's ultimately rejected the one true living God and is claiming himself to be God even though he isn't God. At least in their mind, they don't believe he is God when the reality is it's true, he is God, and they are killing God. But ultimately, in all this to be able to say, they believe it's blasphemy. But here's your problem, right? The problem is Rome has taken away the authority of the Jewish people to, to perform capital punishments. There are a variety of things that you could be accused of and you could be found guilty of in the Old Testament, and it was a capital offense. And so they would put you to death for a variety of things. And so there were numerous things that, that could be done. But the reality is Rome didn't care about any of those. And so Rome had its own law. They were now being governed by Rome. And as a result of that, they needed to follow Roman rule. And so you can't just get mob rule and kill people. And so as a result of this, the authority to kill had been taken away. The sword had been removed from the Jewish people. They had to follow Roman rule. Well, you'll say, well, wait, wait a minute. In Acts chapter 7, they didn't go through any works to stone Stephen to death, right? So why is that the case? Well, ultimately, much of that wasn't based upon Roman. Uh, two things were happening there to just keep, bring some clarity to you to be able to see why that was the case. Ultimately, that wasn't simply just the Sanhedrin that was making that call. It wasn't an official ruling from the Sanhedrin. It was mob rule at that particular time. And so many times Rome would turn a blind eye when those type of things would happen. And that rather than creating issues and creating problems with the Jewish people who were troublemakers in many ways to Rome, uh, because they did have such different view on um, deities. They did have different views on, views on 
uh, the things they could eat and the things they could touch and the things they could be a part of, that they said, man, we don't want to mess with these people. Just try to keep them from killing everything and killing everyone and an insurrection rising. And so many times they would kind of turn a blind eye to these mob-type rules. Second thing that was going to be happening is this was an official ruling from the Sanhedrin. And what you got to remember, Jesus is really, really popular. He showed up, and there were multitudes of people laying their cloaks down, laying their, their tunics down. They were, uh, they were uh, shouting out Hosanna, putting palm branches on the ground. They were claiming their king was here. And so the, the Sanhedrin, one, couldn't go against what they knew were the rules because ultimately they would get in trouble. And they didn't want to be removed from their position because they were making lots of money. That would be one. Second of all, there was the reality of the people that liked Jesus, and that's why they wanted Jesus arrested at night, why they wanted to push this, uh, this trial through very quickly and ultimately have Jesus killed, and wanted them killed because of the popularity, not by their hands, by the hands of the Romans. And then they could say, hey, listen, this guy blasphemed, but we didn't kill him, the Romans killed him. And this is why you're going to see all this tension that's taking place here. Ultimately, this was the reality, this was the issue. And so the condemnation was, we needed to kill Jesus. Here's your problem. And this is a big problem. Rome's not going to kill someone. It basically claims that they're God. They don't care. Is he causing problems? Is, he, is there an uprising happening? Is there some insurrection taking place? No, no, and no. And so they don't care. I don't, we don't care about your, as far as from a Roman perspective, your, your ridiculous little Jewish laws and your little ridiculous Jewish God. And we don't care anything about that. We're the rulers of the known world and we're trying to govern the world, we really don't care about your puny little laws. And so the problem then that the religious leaders have is, how do we kill Jesus when they won't kill him for the, for the, the rules that we claim he's broken? How do we get him killed? And therein lies the problem. And therein lies all of the issues that, that get pulled out here that's not, at first glance, very clear in John's gospel it gets spelled out far more clearly with the other Gospels tying together. And this is clear, and that's why I wanted to be able to help walk us through some of these things, just to be able to see it. And then we're going to, there's a lot of setup here, but then it's going to go very quick as we walk through this. But they need you to be able to see what's taking place here. So they need to bring him to the headquarters before Pilate. want to do it very early because they want everything to get backed up. And ultimately, they want him killed before the Passover. Uh, so they can, listen to this, so they can perform the Passover and honor God with their lives at the end of the day. So we're going to kill God at the beginning of the day so that we can honor God at the end of the day, right? This is a type of hypocrisy that's taking place. Before we're too hard on them, though, that can be me and that can be you. Hey, man, let's go do our church thing first thing Sunday morning. Hey, if there's an 8 o'clock service, man, the sooner the better. Is there a, like a sunrise service? Let's get this thing. Let's get it over with. And then we can do the rest of the stuff we want to do the remainder of the week. For I, as I was studying this this week and was looking at the amazing amount of hypocrisy, man, that tendency is in me. That tendency can be in you. That tendency can be in us. Man, let's just get this thing over with. Let's just, whatever we got to do, let's do this Jesus thing, and then we can go back to our own ongoing lifestyle. And that's what we want to guard against when we come together, worship God, study his word together, let it change us from the inside out, right? So remove these idols so we can honor God. Last quick point, just to help you, this is more historical rather than biblical, and don't tune me out because it's important. Historically, Pilate had gotten in trouble with the Jewish people on two different occasions, which were major problems, two different occasions. Pilate was mean, he was ruthless, he was unkind, he didn't care about the Jews at all. How do we know this? When he first came to power, he came in with lots of of banners, 
showing who he was and that who he represented. And so Tiberius is Caesar. He's the king. And so he comes in with these banners with Tiberius's image on it. You see it all the time. If you watch Gladiator, I'm not recommending the movie, I'm just saying, but you read the imagery of the, the, the basically the bust of the, of the, or the head, if you will, of the Caesar. And so these images will be in a lot of different places. It would be on the coins. It would be on, uh, like I said, statues that were created. It would be on flags that could be designed. It could be on shields. It could be on a variety of things. And so he shows up, and he's got Tiberius's image on all these flags when he shows up. And so uh, when the Jews woke up the next morning, there were flags with Tiberius's image everywhere. And they, it was blasphemy. Because why? The Bible says you should not bow down to any graven image, right? And so now all these images of this deity, supposed deity, claimed to be deity, uh, is all over their, their, holy, their holy place. And so... Uh, where God's presence dwelt. And so, man, they lost their mind, and they rejected this. And so it created much problems for him to eventually, um, word had gotten out, it caused so many problems that um, he, was in, he, he, was, he was reported to, to an official that was hired to him in a nearby city, and ultimately he was told, take the flags down. Well, it didn't take him very long, that again, he wanted to honor Tiberius and you know, kind of rub elbows and show that he was doing what he was supposed to do. And so he had shields created. And on the shield, again, he put, Tiberius's image on it and so then there was a certain location where these shields could be placed it wasn't all over the city but it was in a certain location and so once again he put this shield with Tiberius's image on it and ultimately the people got wind of that once again that's idol worship we need this idol removed from our midst that was a desecration of the holy city and so they once again show up and they say we're about to write Tiberius ourselves." and as a result of this we're going to show him like you're you're creating problems for us and so we're going to go we didn't just go above you by one level above you to your boss, we're going all the way to the top. We're going to the man himself. And so to beat him to the punch, he writes a letter, basically commending himself and putting himself in the most positive light, telling the story to Tiberius in case word made it to Tiberius. And basically Tiberius was livid. He was angry. And he says, listen, take them down. It's ridiculous. I'm trying to get you to keep these crazy people from like creating a problem for us. Quit instigating issues with them. And so Tiberius was angry. Well, here's where we find ourselves. Now, you've got one of the largest feasts of the Jewish people with the greatest number of people that was going to show up at any one time. This was the Passover. This is where sins, uh, where they were going to be celebrating the, the killing of the lamb, and this is where sins will be atoned for. And so this was a major feast for the Jewish people to come. Mandatory for every Jewish male to show up. And so you've got males coming from all over the world that have been dispersed, these Jewish males showing up to perform the Passover feast, right? And so at this period, you've got a massive amount of people. Some historians say that it was almost 250,000 lambs slaughtered as a result to be able to accomplish uh, the, the religious rites that were there, the religious ceremonies that were to be taking place. And so you have an uprising at this particular time. It's a big deal. And so there's pressure on Pilate not to mess up again. He messes up again. He's not going to be able to keep his post. And so this is why, as you're going to see this play out, the Jews begin to know this. They've already rejected him uh they've already pressed against him there was going to be a massacre which he could have done uh to squelch them and quell this and he did not and so they already know you're in control meaning from the jewish perspective we understand you're in control but you don't have total control and we can manipulate you and so as a result of this this is what you're going to see seeing as the underlying processes flow out of this whole interaction here with Pilate. that ultimately why would he kill an innocent man well no he didn't care he didn't care but number two, uh, he needs to keep the people under control. 
And so there's all this tension that's going to be building as we walk through this. So I just want you to see some backdrop here because there, this does happen in history. And the Bible doesn't give us every aspect of the history. We need to hold to what the Bible says. It's most important. But then there's aspects that doesn't take away from the story. It doesn't hinder what the Bible's actually teaching, but gives us more understanding. I want you to be able to see that and know that. And so it's helpful for us to see that. So all that, the Jews want to condemn Jesus. And it's really funny here that once again, they need to condemn him. They need him dead. And yet they want to follow God at the same time. Look how it plays itself out. Then they led him to the house of Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. That's probably around 6 a.m. Uh, it's going to be alluded in other texts that it was the sixth hour. And so ultimately the sixth hour would be 6 a.m. And it went from 12 to 12. And so this is how it would work. And so it basically, uh, it's probably a little bit before 6 a.m. that this is going to be taking place. And it's going to happen relatively quickly. And so they've already condemned him themselves. Now they need... They need him to be condemned to death by the Romans so that the Romans can kill him. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, listen to this, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Okay, what's going on there? This wasn't even in the Scripture. This is not one of the moral laws of the Old Testament. This is a rabbinical law. This is a law of the rabbis, of the teachers, of the Jewish leaders. And so this is one of the many, many laws that they would say, well, you can't be in a, in a Gentile's house because you'll become unclean. And so clearly Pontius Pilate would have been a Gentile. He'd be considered unclean to them. They hated the Gentiles, and so they want to be in their presence. So they need a Gentile to accomplish their work for them because they want Jesus dead, and they need to kind of manipulate this whole thing. But here's the deal. We really want to honor God later on this evening, and so we need Jesus killed, but we don't want to dishonor God now, and so we're not going to go into your house, even though it's not what God's law says. It's what we said God's law says, and so we made this law up, so we're going to try to keep man's law so that ultimately we can honor God, even though God didn't ask us to do this, while we kill God at the same time. Does that make sense? Weird, right? Well, we do the same thing. There's things that we do all the time that we're like, why do we do this? Does the Bible tell us we have to do this? No. But we feel bounded by our conscience, right? And we should never sin against our own conscience, but we feel our conscience is many times misinformed, and we do things that we don't have to do. The Bible doesn't even command us to do, but what we should do in order to honor God when God never called us to do certain things. And this is where they find themselves. So they're going to kill God while they try to obey a law that wasn't of God to begin with, right? And this is the whole hypocrisy of the whole thing that's taking place. So you see the condemnation of the king of the Jews. So they want him dead. They, they've already condemned him. Now they want Pilate to take his, to do his part. Number two, the accusation of the king of the Jews. The accusation. So Pilate is a military man. He's a, he's a governor. He's going to rule the land. He's going to judge the land. So he had both. He's going to take care of making sure the law of the land was handled the way it needed to be handled. He had to follow a prescribed order. There was laws, even in, with Rome. And so ultimately, they wanted to follow the order. And so finally, there's some normalcy to how this thing's supposed to go. And it's good. There's laws being followed, finally. And so Pilate wants to find out, what's the accusation? What are you accusing him of? So check out how this goes. So verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them. They're not going to come in. So he goes out, and there's probably a, a courtyard below. And he's looking out over his balcony, and he's asking them, um, hey, so what, what, what accusation do you bring against this man? What did he do? What, what do you want me to do for you? What did he do? Now listen how the Jews respond. They know, Israel, or they know the Romans aren't going to kill him for his supposed calling himself God, for blaspheming their God, because they don't even believe in their God. They're polytheistic, right? So they're not, they believe in many gods. They don't believe in the one true living God of, of the Israelites. And so ultimately they're like, He's like, what did he do? And they know they're not going to kill him for breaking our laws. And so they answered him. Listen to how they respond. How John takes their response. If this man were not doing evil, 
We wouldn't have to deliver them over to you, would we? Did they answer his question? What's the accusation? Does anybody know? We have no idea what the accusation is because they didn't give him one. Would we be standing here at 6 o'clock in the morning, Pilate, if, like, if he wasn't doing evil things? Well, we are, and so I need you to tell me what it is that he's doing, right? Never got an answer to his question. Not at all, at least according to John's records. Now, this is where it's helpful to know other accounts and what those other accounts said, and I'll show you some of those that were the other gospel writers said. But basically, it's this. We have no grounds for him to be here, but we want him dead. And this is the accusation. And so Pilate needs an accusation to be given. And so then the next response, the expectation for the king of the Jews. Pilate said to them, well, you never gave me an answer. You never really answered me what you said. So here's the deal. So Pilate Pilate said to them, verse 31, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. Listen, I don't care. If you don't have, if you're going to, don't waste my time. If you don't have something to actually bring before me and he broke some of your stupid laws, I know it's why you're not bringing it to my attention. If he had done something really major, here's the reality. My cohort, my, my troops are an elite group of troops. We just took over the known world. All right, we're not stupid. Uh, we have a tower that allows us to look over into your supposedly sacred temple, right? Now, I'm not demeaning. I believe in this temple. This is where the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. So I'm saying from the Roman perspective, we can see into your temple, and so we're watching what you guys are doing. And listen, if there was a real uprising... There's a real issue. You don't think we would know about it long before you knew about it? You don't think my soldiers would not know what's happening here? So, like, you think we don't know what we're doing? We're governing the world here. My soldiers know what they're doing. And so, ultimately, he's not worried about a petty little person that the, the Jewish people bring to him. as if it's going to create some major problem. If there was a major problem, Pilate would probably already know about it. Right? Because why? He's already messed up a few times. He doesn't want to be like deposed of his position. And so ultimately, he doesn't believe. So he's like, listen, it's probably something minor. You're not bringing me any kind of real accusation. Take him, judge him according to your own laws. Do whatever you need to do. And here's where the expectation comes. They answered him. There's the Jewish leaders. If this, uh, the, Jewish, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There it is. We don't have anything really to accuse him of, but we want him dead. And we can't kill him because you guys said we don't have the right to kill him anymore. If y'all had given us the right to kill him, we would have killed him ourselves. But you haven't done that. This is really convenient for them because they didn't want to kill Jesus, right? Jesus was really popular. This was a major deal that was coming in. That's why they didn't want to arrest him during the Passover. They wanted this to be after the Passover and try to get him in a much secret, secret venue. But Jesus forced their hand, and so this is where they found themselves. And so ultimately, here's where they're at. We, don't want to, we can't put people to death, and you do. Now listen to this. This is really interesting. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus has spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You don't, you don't catch anything else. Catch that. Who killed Jesus? Jesus killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. Why? Because it was been prophesied. Jesus himself had been saying all the way from the very beginning of his ministry he was going to go to the cross and he was going to die. That's why it makes sense in Luke 9, take up your cross and follow me. Right? Like This is the, the instruction for all following disciples. If you're going to be willing to die to yourself and submit to Christ. And so this is the instruction. So he said it in John. If you want to write these down and look them up later, 
all simply in the, in the gospel account that we've already studied. John chapter 3, verse 14. John three fourteen. he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. John chapter 8, verse 28, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So it's John three fourteen, John 8, 28, John 12, 32, and 33. So John three fourteen, eight twenty eight, 28, chapter 12, 32, verse 32, and verse 33, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why is that signifying how he's going to die? Because that's what they would do. They'd put you on a cross and they'd lift you up, right? And you would die a death that's excruciating, which Pastor Tim will walk us through in about two weeks, the actual crucifixion itself. Now, how does that tell about how he's going to die? Because the Jewish people didn't lift you up when they killed you. They threw you down. How did they kill people? Anybody got an idea? Somebody said it louder. Stoning, right? So they're going to, like with Stephen, Acts chapter 7, they're going to take large stones and they're going to th- hurl it down at you. Not do very good. It's not going to be very powerful to throw it up at them, right? Because they're going to be much force. By the time it gets to them, they're like, hey, push it back down, right? So they, the force is gravity, and you throw the stones, large stones, until you kill the person by stoning them to death. And so ultimately, when Jesus is signifying he's going to be lifted up, he's saying, I'm going to die by crucifixion. Now, the Jews didn't know this, and the Jews didn't care. The Jews didn't want to be responsible for killing the so-called, very popular, self-proclaimed Messiah. So they wanted the Romans to do it so they can get off scot-free, right? They didn't want to be responsible for this. They didn't want to be with their, their laws, somehow, their laws, their man-made laws, somehow defiling themselves so they couldn't participate in the Passover. So they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead quickly. They wanted to do quietly, and they didn't want to do it in any way that could defile themselves so they couldn't participate in the Passover because this was a big deal. And so all this, they said, we want Pilate to kill him. Meanwhile, what's the underlying thing? Is the Jews held responsible? Absolutely. Are the Romans held responsible? Absolutely. All the Roman soldiers took place in killing Jesus responsible? Absolutely. The Jewish people who cried out, may his blood be on us and our families and our children, are they held responsible? Absolutely. But was God sovereign in this whole plan from the very beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, no one takes my life from me from me, I willingly lay it down myself. Why? Because he's the door, entrance into the kingdom of God, and he's the shepherd, the good shepherd, right? That leads his sheep to hear his voice. And so ultimately, he's going to the cross. Let's not miss this. Why? To make payment for sin and sinners. Even some of them who at that moment were crucifying him, right? Some of them are going to come to faith in Christ. And so, not all of them, but some of them. And so, ultimately, it's a beautiful picture here. And so, the expectation is, we need him dead, and we need you guys to kill him. That's what we want. Now, there's no real accusation there that we can, that we can see. There's anything that's worthwhile to even talk about, but ultimately, this is what they had said. So, then it leads us to the interrogation of the king of the Jews. The interrogation of the king of the Jews. Verse 33 to 38. So, we'll look at just the first verse, and I'm going to pause for just a moment, give some explanation, and we'll, we'll keep reading. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now here's the question. Where in the world did that come from? Up to this point, you seen anything about the king of the Jews in our text? No. What is this? Where did the king of the Jews come from? And you're going to see a lot about my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom, a king. I am the king. I am a king. You get to the very end. It says, you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And so over and over and over, you've got this comment about the king. Where's this coming from? Well, that's what I'm saying. If you read the other gospel accounts, it's really, really helpful. And if Matthew has already written, which it was, before John wrote his gospel, he knows the, the, the details have already been filled in. And so the reality is, is that 
um, as you look at other accounts, it's communicated to them what had taken place. So uh, the other gospel accounts had been already uh, written and communicated about what has transpired and what's taken place. And so um, in, in Luke, well, it's in Luke's gospel, actually, not Matthew's, it says this, And the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, accuse Jesus before Pilate, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tri- tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Complete fabrication and lie. When Jesus was asked specifically whether or not he should render uh, taxes to Caesar, Jesus mar- they marveled at the teaching of Jesus when Jesus responded. Well, show me an inscription that's on the coin that you think you need to be rendering to Caesar. And whose inscription would have been on the coin? Caesar's. And so then Jesus' statement is, render unto Caesar's what Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. What was that telling us? Was that telling not just them, but us? Hey, money doesn't really matter. How you use it matters, right? Whether you honor God with how you use it or not, that matters a lot, right? James 2, if you see someone in need and you don't give them what they need, uh, then how's the love of God in you? And so ultimately, we can use finances, we can use money to be able to help the poor. We can use them finance to help the body of Christ. And so it's really, really important to, to be able to see that. But what's he saying? Whose image is on that coin that you give value to in some way? Caesar. Man, then give it to Caesar. Then rendering to God, what's God? So Caesar's giving the money. But then rendering to God, what is God? What does that mean? How should we interpret that? You know, all the way back in Genesis says that we were created in the what? Image of God. So, hey, that coin's got Caesar's image. Give that to Caesar. But you bear God's image. Give that to God. Hey, let's make it a priority. Let's give God what's most important. He wants you. He wants you to live for Him. And then, yeah, how you live, use your money is going to be, it's going to be important to reflect that. But ultimately... Render unto God what is God's. He created you. He is intended to rule over you. Submit to his rulership. Right? And so, so is it true in Luke 30, 23, verse 2, that he was encouraging them not to give under, contribute to Caesar what was Caesar's? Absolutely not. They marveled that he was, could even uh, shut down their questions where they were just trying to trap him with religious questions. They marveled at it. So they make it up. It's a lie. And then they say, and he's an insurrectionist. He's trying to raise up an uprising against Caesar. He's, he's trying to call himself a king. And so this is where, where then when he brings them in to the headquarters, he says, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, I've not heard too much about you. Not so much that it's caused any problems. I mean, well, he would have known more about it. There would have been more communicated about Jesus in the Gospels if that would have been the case. And so, are you what they say you are? You an insurrectionist trying to raise up an uprising? You got a militia that's going to attack us? That's what, that's what he's asking. Interrogation of the king of the Jews. And that's why I entitled this whole thing, Jesus the king of the Jews. Because from this, this derisive term that the Jews came up with themselves, he's trying to be a king and he's trying to take over Rome. It's going to get brought up again and again and again, and again, all throughout the remainder of this gospel. He's the king of the Jews. And Stephen will be put above his placard 
That's what he's being accused of. He's being put to death because he's the king. He's the Jews' king, and they don't want him as king. Isn't the irony amazing? And, and, and to see the sovereignty of God through all this. And he, Paul's time out, parentheses for us as it relates to us. What encouragement should I give to us at all? If you are a child of God, we can say with, with Paul what Paul said. If God be for us, what can man do to us? God's sovereign over this. He's in complete control. He knows where you're at. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you've encountered this week. And if it was tragic or devastating or, or frustrating or difficult, alarming, discouraging, defeating. He knows all of those things. He even allowed those things. It's not like he's up in heaven going, oh man, I have no idea what's going on in Kevin's life right now. I didn't even see that one coming. No, I allowed that. Why did I allow it? Do you trust me? You still love me? Am I still your king? So Pilate wants to know. They say you're a king. Jesus answered, verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? See, this is the first rendering of this as it relates to John. And so John's bringing the clarity there. Is it because they said that outside? Or do you really, really want to know? Meanwhile, Jesus knows his heart. He can see it. We've already seen that all throughout Gospel of John, have we not? John chapter 2, 23 to 25, John chapter 3. All throughout, Jesus knows what, what they're thinking. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what's in Pilate's heart. So Jesus didn't answer his question. I'm not intimidated by you, Pilate, at all. I know how this thing's going down. I know how things was going to go down three years ago, even before that. But I started telling my disciples three years ago how this thing was going to go down. This is not a surprise to me. So, you saying this of your own accord? Did others say this about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? I mean, what do I care? I, I'm, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now don't be lecturing me. Don't be asking me questions. I'm in control here. What have you done? You're before me because they want you dead. What did you do? Once again, is there anything that's been intimidating to Pilate or he had already known these things about Jesus? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Pay attention to this comment here because next week there's going to be some things happening and I need you to track with me because it's amazing when it Paul pulls together because Pilate's about to be really, really afraid. And you think, why in the world is Pilate afraid? And afraid of Jesus. Why is Pilate afraid of Jesus when he's not afraid of Jesus? He's more afraid of the mob, but he's going to be really afraid of Jesus. And I don't have time to unpack it today. That's why we're doing a two-parter. But you need to track with this because it's in line with these things that Jesus is going to say right here. And then some things are going to be said about Jesus by the Jews themselves. It's going to freak Pilate out, right? It's going to make him really alarmed. And, it's, and it's, it doesn't bring such an alarm, such a, a challenge that he ends up getting born again. He doesn't get saved, but ultimately... It's going to scare him to death, right? So Jesus answered. He's going to answer not what he's done, but he's going to now answer the first question that Pilate asked, right? Are you the king of the Jews? So it gets a little confusing how he's going to answer these questions. He asks Jesus a question, are you king of the Jews? Are you asking me this because you really care? Or are you asking as other people talk about it? My Jew, I don't care. What have you done? I'm going to go back to your first question and tell you what the answer is to your first question. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. I wouldn't be standing before you about to die if this was my kingdom. If you only knew who I was. He's already told his disciples, I could send 12 legions of angels. 12 legions. You know, there's an Old Testament account where one angel of the Lord was sent against the armies of Sennacherib. One angel armies of, against the armies of Sennacherib. And one angel in one night killed 180,000 soldiers of Sennacherib. What would, what would, what would happen with 12,000 or 12 legions of angels? Man, dude, this isn't my kingdom. Meaning, yeah, the world is the footstool of God. So is this his kingdom? Sure it is. What does he mean? I'm not operating by your little petty, like, boundary kingdoms. Your little insignias and your little Roman coinage and stuff. I'm not, that's not, I, I don't operate like that. I'm about transforming hearts and lives. And they're going to live with me forever in an eternal kingdom. And you're not going to be able to squelch my kingdom. Over 2,000 years, you've not been able to stop my kingdom. Oh, yeah, kingdoms have risen and they have fallen. And it will continue on, Right? from the Babylonians to the Medes, the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, all based upon what God said was going to happen, all, in the book, all discussed in the book of Daniel. Just as God told decades and, and centuries before it ever happened. Here's how the kingdoms are going to go, the superpowers. And has it happened just like that? Absolutely has. So powers rise, powers fall. And one day, potentially, the United States of America will not be a superpower anymore like it has been. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not a prophet. I'm just saying great potential because why rome isn't rome anymore greece isn't greece anymore alexander the great's gone medo persian kingdoms the medes and the persians gone babylonians gone assyrians gone united states of america maybe one day gone superpower of the world but god's kingdom here on earth it's not of this world it's not geopolitical not financial. It's hearts of humans. And it can't be squelched. It can't be stopped. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So my kingdom, it's not of this world. It's not geopolitical. If it were, they'd be fighting for me. I wouldn't be here before you. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. I have no idea what kind that is, but you are. You're telling me you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness true to the truth. Yeah, I'm a king. I'm a king of truth. I have the corner on truth. What, how you view your reality, it's based upon what other people think. Your life's full of a snare. You want this guy in Rome to think you're important so you can keep your job. You're trying to keep a bunch of people, a mob right below you, happy so that you can keep your job. Your view of truth is so like, messed up, postmodern in your way of thinking, because, man, what is truth? It's all relative based upon my perception. My truth is absolute. It's clear. It's clarity. I know every, every situation what I'm supposed to do because why I'm truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Invitation to Pilate. You want to know if I'm a king? You want to be one of my followers? Are you listening to truth? You listening to me? You want to be a part of my kingdom that's not of this world? 
Pilate's response is so snarky. So interesting. You know, he, he says, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Whatever, man. Whatever. Immediately, look at verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Totally bypassed what Jesus said. Just the imagery there, you know, sanctified imagination here working. And Jesus is talking to him. And I'm, what'd you do? You a king? You better talk to me. I have power. What's your kingdom about? It's about truth. Well, what is truth? Walks out immediately. Completely bored by this whole encounter. And then he declares the declaration of innocence of the king of the Jews. And this is important. Super, super important here. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. How does this thing end? How does it end? He goes to a cross and dies. And this is not going to be the first time Pilate's going to, Pilate, the judge, is going to say he is innocent. In between this section of Scripture, according to gospel accounts, you pick back up in the life of Judas. Remember him? When he got this whole thing started, full of the holy, or full of the devil, indwelt by the devil, he goes back and says he sinned greatly, and he's guilty of the blood of the innocent. Is that repentance? No, it's remorse, and he kills himself. You know what the the tradition of how it ends up with Pilate, just to give you a little foreshadowing, and how it ends with Pilate at the very end. He loses Rome, or he loses uh, leadership over Jerusalem. So what he's trying to keep, he ends up losing it. Gets called back to Rome, and we don't hear anything of him anymore. Speculation is he killed himself before he could go before Caesar. What is truth? Well, he clearly didn't see it when it stood right before him. He clearly didn't hear the voice of the one who is truth. And so he says, I find no guilt in this man. Here's your verdict. You brought no accusations, well, kind of a half accusation. It was horrible. I interrogated him. Here's a man who's seen what real insurrection is. He's got a man named Barabbas who brought about an insurrection, even murdered a guy. We're going to hear about him in just a minute. He knows what insurrections are, uprisings. And this man is not intimidating in the least. He's known as a teacher and a miracle worker. Not super scary to Rome. And so, verdict, gavel, innocent, not guilty. Now, in between verse 38 and 39, there's another segue that's picked up in other gospel accounts. Luke 23 talks about him going before Herod of Antipas. At this particular time, he goes out and says, not guilty, and the Jews lose their mind. And now they're, they're throwing out all kinds of other things, that, accusations about Jesus. And in this particular time, Jesus, Jesus is standing before, beside Pilate. And he says, not guilty. I've just interrogated him. The stuff you're saying is not true, just ridiculous. I don't care anymore. Not guilty. And they lose their mind. They're like hurling insults at Jesus. And so ultimately, here's Jesus beside him. And Pilate's dumbfounded. It says he marveled greatly. What did he marvel at? They are like condemning you, and you say not a word. I interrogated you, and you're like, whatever. My kingdom's not of this world. Either he's crazy, 
Or, man, there's something different about this guy. This is Pilate marveled greatly. Because why? He just gave a verdict that he's innocent. And now they won't stop. And it's getting more intense. It's getting more... Remember all the history behind Pilate and the Jews? So now Pilate's getting a, little, getting a little worked up here. And he's like, I'm getting worked up. I could lose my job. You could lose your life. Why are you freaking out too? And so he gets word. As they're yelling things out at him, he realizes he's from Galilee. Ah, I got a way out of this. Galilee, that's out of my jurisdiction. There's a guy who rules for us in Galilee. And his name is Herod of Antipas. He's the one who put John the, ba- John the Baptist, yeah, John the Baptist to death, beheaded him. Hey, we can send him there. He lived in a city called Tiberias, named after Caesar, the, the, the Roman emperor at the time, that was built by him, um, that was built by uh, Herod Antipas. And so he's in town for the Jewish feast, right? And so he sends him across the way, sends Jesus across the way, and ultimately he wants to get Jesus out of his hands. And this is the second part of the trial, the civil trial, Hopefully, Herod will take care of this for him. Herod's just amused by him, hadn't seen Jesus really, hadn't interacted with Jesus, and so wants to hear about Jesus, wants to learn about Jesus. Hopefully, the Bible says he wants to see him do a miracle. Jesus performs, and Jesus didn't even open his mouth at all. Didn't say a single word. They put a robe on him, hail him as king. Once again, they're bringing these same accusations against him there, and so they make fun of him. They mock Jesus. They beat him up again. The Jewish leaders are continuing to dog his step and accuse him of writing things and Jesus doesn't speak one word fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that he was silent as a sheep was silent before the shearers so the son of man did not speak a word Jesus fulfilling scripture all along the way and then Herod's like I'm done with him there's nothing I can get out of him sends him back to Pilate for the third portion right and so the third part of the civil trial and it's here verse 39 that all happened between verse 38 and 39 verse 39 Pilate then says, oh, man, he's back in my hands. (laughs) I want to just get rid of this guy. I don't want to deal with him anymore. He's innocent, but these Jews will not let it go. And so Pilate says, I got an idea. Okay, the the Herod thing didn't work. I got another one. There's a custom. And so the custom is that they would release a person during a Passover that was arrested by Rome, and it was a goodwill goodwill effort that was given. And so every year they would reveal a... a, um, uh, a prisoner from Rome, and so ultimately it was somebody was going to be a, a major insurrectionist or some kind of an issue there, and so it's going to be a major player. And so he says, I got an idea. I'm going to release them to Jesus, and I'm going to pick a really bad dude. His name's Barabbas. And I'm going to pick Barabbas, and he literally was a robber, he was a murderer, and he was guilty of insurrection based upon Luke and Mark's accounts. So this dude's bad. And I'll put those two up beside one another, and so as a result then, we'll let them compete against one another. And so as a result, here's what happens. Verse 39 to 34, you see the rejection of the king of the Jews, and this is it. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at their Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, your king? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a robber, as it says here, a murderer, as Luke says, and an insurrectionist, as Mark says. Complete rejection. We want a really evildoer rather than the sinless Son of God. We want the world system, not God's kingdom. That's where we'll stop for this week. Takeaways for us, for you and I. What are we to learn? Men and women, these Jews are responsible for killing Jesus, and they'll make payment for that, that sin. 
before a holy God for all of eternity if they never repented their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And before we look down on them, before we believe that to be anti-Semitic, the Romans were in, culpable, and men and women, you and I are culpable because it's for our sins as well that we'll be held responsible. But the marvelous news to us is that we don't have to die an eternal death constantly being punished for our sins for all of eternity, separated from God in a place called hell because exactly why Jesus was silent before the shearers. He went purposefully to die for sin and sinners that all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him may live forever. Because why? He is the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the voice of truth. And his kingdom is not of this world, but of the next. That's great hope for you and I. It's great encouragement for you and I. But listen, it's not just for us. It's for men and women, boys and girls, family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, friends, everyone outside of these four walls who have never been saved for us to communicate the truths of the kingdom that they too may turn from sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus. Marvelous, marvelous gospel. Because why? He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. And he's the savior of that world as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for time we can study your word. Thank you for the attentiveness of each in this room. I pray this word would not fall on deaf ears, but would accomplish what you please it to accomplish. I'm thankful for those promises in your word. It gives us encouragement, gives us hope, gives us insight, gives us instruction. I pray you'd help us as we leave this place to be men and women who are about the extending and expanding of your, your eternal kingdom here on this earth. It's not hindered by maps and not hindered by boundaries and or even as we look at the olympics and see what we many many times is believed to be great unity and great joy and great encouragement and a an olive branch of peace in the midst of sinfulness lord it's but a shadow of the true kingdom of true peace that only you can provide and so i pray that everyone in this room would hear your voice the voice of truth and either would glory in that fact in their sanctification, in their continued growth in you, or we glory in that fact for the very first time today in salvation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, again, for all of your hard work and preparation. I know that it's amazing to think about the kind of death that Jesus had on our behalf and all of the situation. And-